there's this kind of growing sense uh, from the type of research that I talked about before that affirmative action just isn't working very well. Uh, that, that, that a lot of the intended goals don't translate very well and that the intended beneficiaries may actually end up hurt more than helped. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from the great state of Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from a very sunny and beautiful Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob? Uh, And I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com and Firm Manager from LexisNexis at firmmanager.com slash LTN. Well, on February 20th, uh, the Supreme Court said it would hear a potentially landmark case. Uh, The case is Fisher versus University of Texas at Austin, and it could have profound effects on race-based affirmative action in public schools. So let's get right to this very important discussion. Our guests today have studied, blogged, and reported extensively on affirmative action. So first up, let me introduce Mike Sachs. Mike is the Supreme Court correspondent for the Huffington Post, as well as a graduate of Georgetown Law. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for being here. And also joining us today is Professor Richard Sander from UCLA School of Law. Uh, Richard has uh, studied uh, extensively studied uh, questions of social and economic inequality for nearly all of his career. He's published a comprehensive study of affirmative action in American law schools. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Richard. Thanks a lot. Mike, I wonder if we could just uh, kind of ask you to, to, to set the stage for us uh, today, uh, give us some background on, on the Fisher case that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear. Right. So the Fisher case was granted certiorari earlier this, uh, this week, and it's been percolating in the, uh, in, in the Texas federal courts for, I guess, a couple of years now. Uh, it's, it's a case brought by a woman named Abigail Fisher, who uh, graduated just shy of the top 10% of her high school um, in, in Texas, in Sugarland, Texas. And the top 10% law in, in Texas uh, was passed to automatically admit the uh, top 10% of graduates in each high school uh, into the University of Texas uh, freshman class in order to uh, create a, um, a, a diverse class that um, through means that were that were race neutral that law came in response to um, in response to a, a 1990s uh, case in by the Fifth Circuit that struck down uh, all affirmative action in um, in uh, in higher education. Uh, so, in 2003, the U.S. Supreme Court in Grutter v. Bollinger uh, nullified that earlier opinion by the Fifth Circuit um, when uh, the court, by a five-to-four vote in which Sandra Day O'Connor was the, the opinion writer and the crucial fifth vote, joined with the, the liberals to uh, to say that uh, that the uh, that universities may uh, take race into account when 
uh, when, when considering applications, as long as in, it's in a holistic, uh, highly individualized manner. And in doing so, the, the court also said that they will defer very heavily to um, to the to the universities um, to the universities' uh, belief that diversity in uh, on campus is a compelling uh, state interest. So um, that that opinion. Uh, was pretty controversial. It, it, it uh, garnered uh, four very intense dissenters, uh, one of whom, Justice Kennedy, uh, said that, you know, I, be- I believe that uh, as a last resort, strict scrutiny um, should apply to any kind of race, uh, race-conscious admissions policy. And I, and I do believe in theory that, uh, that race, uh, race-conscious admissions uh, should sometimes come into account. Um, but, but he believed that the O'Connor opinion uh, was actually uh, very watered down on its scrutiny and wasn't actually applying strict scrutiny, which he, which he really protested to. Uh, so now, with this case coming before the Supreme Court, um, the justices will have a chance to reconsider Grutter and Kennedy being that uh, being now the the crucial fifth vote uh, because O'Connor has been replaced by uh, by the much more conservative uh, Justice Alito. Uh, Kennedy could could really decide um, how far to cut into, redefine, or reverse Grutter, uh, or and perhaps even end affirmative action in uh, in the United States in public public education and higher education rather uh, for good and that's that's all to be seen um, what's most what's very interesting uh, also just to throw this nugget out there is that Justice Kagan has recused and Justice Kagan being the former Dean of Harvard Law School has firsthand experience with uh, affirmative action in higher education and uh, and its effects so the court uh, especially the court's liberals perhaps lost a very uh, powerful voice even in dissent uh, to to uh, defend Grutter and um, and and the the continued viability of affirmative action in higher education. Yeah, I would just add to that that uh, the significance of Kagan's recusal is less her vote because yeah. the conservatives still you know, would need five votes to overturn the Fifth Circuit ruling. But but Kagan, you know, would be by far the most uh, sort of immersed in the in the operation of affirmative action in higher education, and and so you know, taking her voice out of the dialogue at the court uh, really changes the, the dynamic. What's the university's perspective on this affirmative action program? How does it treat its admissions? The well, Texas, um, Texas's 10% program uh, has actually been pretty effective at creating a lot of racial diversity. And one of the key controversies in the case is whether you can uh, institute explicit race, racial preferences when you have a race-neutral program that's already doing a pretty good job. So before these, uh, before these. Uh, new race preferences were reintroduced after Grutter. Uh, University of Texas was already about 22% black and Hispanic in its enrollment, and and the uh, the race conscious admissions are only increasing that by uh, another two percent. So, you know, one of the key arguments for the court to consider is is um, you know what what exactly is a critical mass? What how far are schools allowed to go to kind of create um, the exact mix that they might like. Right, and, and um, one of the distingu- distinguishing features of the UT program um, 
in in taking race into account for uh, for applicants who fall below the top 10% of their high school class uh, is that uh, UT has justified its its program for the for the sake of classroom diversity, which I think is is somewhat different from uh, the Grutter uh, defense of affirmative action for campus diversity. Um, and I know that in the dissent from on bank. Uh, Rehearing denial. Uh, I think it was uh, Judge, Chief Judge Jones in the in the Fifth Circuit uh, said that uh, you know that this is this is diversity to the point of absurdity, um, in, in in her opinion, Be, because to assure each and every classroom in each and every uh, in each and every field of study. Uh, in, in Jones, in Jones's uh, opinion, was just you know was just micromanaging to the extreme, and she felt that that was uh, well beyond what uh, what Gruder promised in it, or Gruder rather um, secured in its words. So part of the point here is that uh, you know we could very easily have a Supreme Court decision in Fisher that's very narrow. Mm-hmm. Um, the Texas program has these two really kind of unusual features: talking about classroom diversity and, and supplementing a, a pretty robust race-neutral program. So it's quite conceivable that uh, the court would simply vote to invalidate those and would try to give a little bit more meat to what narrow, narrow tailoring means under Grutter. Now, this is where I think judicial politics comes into play. Uh, how, uh, and I'm curious about this question. This is, I think what's, what's driving most uh, most court watchers who aren't totally knee deep in the in the affirmative action um, policy debate is. Uh, you know how how far is the court willing to go uh, when you have uh, at least two members of the court who've who've been itching to you know really just get to get back to Baki the 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 core uh, affirmative action case from from the late 70s and and reverse it um, and you perhaps have two others uh, who signed in Alito and Roberts who signed on to uh, Roberts's aphorism you know the only way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race in their parents involved decision in 2007. So you have four potential votes to really just just go all go whole hog and reverse uh, and, and and affirmative action altogether, um, and then you have Kennedy who who uh, has never expressed that kind of opinion. But how much will he will he be willing to go along with the tide, or how perhaps limited would, would, will the court be, or, or restrained will the court be, in especially uh, especially. Hearing arguments just short of, an, of just short of a presidential election, uh, in in perhaps going that more narrow route instead of instead of doing what they did, say in Citizens United, and and just saying you know what we 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 feel this this uh, these decisions have not served their purpose and we're going to uproot them altogether. Well, we have this uh, we have the situation in Gruder. The uh, the University of Texas was 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 cognizant of Gruder in in, in designing it, its its race conscious program, as I understand it, and and. Uh, it, it, both the, uh, the 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 trial court here in, in this case uh, and the in the Fifth Circuit uh, both uh, held that that the University of Texas program was uh, in keeping with Gruder. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so does that does that uh, hold any significance in, in in how the Supreme Court uh, might look at this? Uh, it could, but you know. It's important to keep in mind that one of the votes in the Fifth Circuit was from Judge Garza, who wrote a, a long and pretty eloquent opinion that essentially said, I'm going to uphold this under Grutter because Grutter is such a mess. Uh, Grutter <laughs> uh, he basically echoed all of Justice Kennedy's criticisms of Grutter and said, uh, you know, Justice O'Connor created such a, a broad, vague standard uh, 
that it's hard to evaluate anything under this. So, so Garza was clearly arguing that the, uh, uh, indirectly that the Supreme Court should take this and, and, and use this opportunity to clean up Grutter. And that's why I felt that, that Jones's dissent from denial was, was, uh, particularly disingenuous, actually. Um, I think that both uh, Higginbotham and uh, and Garza's opinions in the original three judge three judge panel decision decision upholding um, uh, the UT's affirmative action uh, policy um, was a much more honest reckoning. Saying, you know, Gruder says this, we may not agree with it, but this this um, UT's plan is so consistent with with with. Uh, with what was passing Grutter, that that we have no choice but to uphold it. But hey, Supreme Court, if you want to overturn it, go ahead. Whereas Jones said that she she pretty much reinterpreted Grutter to be what Kennedy had always wished it to be in the first place, which was uh, which was a strict scrutiny, you know, an honest strict scrutiny standard that was uh, you know strict strict in theory, fatal in fact. Um, and and uh, I felt that that those dissenters from denial and Bonk in the Fifth Circuit were were really just making an effort to to cast Grutter as far more narrow than it really was uh, and pre- present themselves as the true champions of, of, uh, of affirmative action in higher education when, you know, that, that, that's really the total opposite of, 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 uh, of what they were, they were trying, to, trying to say in their opinion. Well, maybe, except that, um, you know, Grutter is so vague that, that, um, that you can equally plausibly argue that uh, Garza and Higginbottom kind of gave Grutter the benefit of the doubt or gave Texas the benefit of the doubt under Grutter and and Jones and the other um, on Bonk dissenters simply bend the interpretation of Grutter a little bit differently. But, but Grutter is, is you know, a vessel that pretty much holds whatever you put into it. It has language that um, uh, that is that, that suggests that Texas is is going way beyond um, what permissible affirmative action should be. Uh, well, let's take a let's take a walk down that slippery slope. Um, there's some language in Grutter that says that the the skills necessary for uh, today's increasingly global marketplace can only be developed through exposure through widely diverse uh, people and cultures. Now, is someone sending a signal here that uh, in addition to race, we're going to have ethnicity or country style designations in the future that we have to have students from different marketplace, different global marketplaces in our schools? Well, part of the part, part of the dynamic here, I think one of the things that, that is going to be a key touchstone of the Supreme Court uh, decision on this is is whether they want to get into the empirical uh, realities of what's happening with affirmative action. Um, so, for example, uh, the, uh, the the opinions generally talk about the importance of diversity and the need for that diversity to be narrowly tailored. So that suggests that it's pretty important to uh, explore types of diversity other than other than race. And make sure that you're you're at least achieving those before you resort to constitutionally suspect racial classifications. And that in turn means that we ought to be we ought to be concerned about socioeconomic diversity. If we really believe that diversity in the classroom or the university is important, then doesn't that mean that we want to have uh, student bodies that that reflect a range of socioeconomic backgrounds? And most uh, most schools don't come anywhere close to that. Um, the dominant recipients of preferences and just like the dominant uh, typical student at, at most of the at most of the strong universities comes from an upper middle class or an upper class background so so for example one of the um, one of the questions the court has to consider is uh, are, are we are we comfortable with a resort to race preferences when other types of diversity are clearly lacking another example of that is is that racial preferences themselves are increasingly given 
to people who um, uh, sort of don't fit the traditional notion of who a racial beneficiary is. Um, there was a study at Harvard Law School a few years ago by Onik Lanier that, that found that 70% of the blacks at Harvard Law School did not have four African-American grandparents. Uh, a very large proportion were black immigrants. A very large proportion had, you know, were from biracial households. So, um, uh, you know, that raises another issue about narrow tailoring and, and who exactly we're reaching with preferences. Well, if you had that kind of uh, sort of socioeconomic-based uh, program of preferences, wouldn't that uh, have at least a, a salutary effect in, in increasing uh, racial diversity as well? Absolutely. I, I, um, when California passed Prop 2 and 9, I was involved in an experiment here at my UCLA Law School to try to, um, try to see how we could develop socioeconomic substitute for race. And we, we did things like take into account household wealth and um, the poverty in the neighborhood that people grew up in that, that really uh, helped uh, maximize the racial diversity that one would get from, from looking just at one's individual class background. And uh, um, it, it produced pretty significant diversity uh, compared with other schools in the system that were doing more uh, conventionally race-neutral things. Uh, the law school maintained uh, quite a bit of racial diversity, although the number of blacks did fall. But um, uh, a program like this adopted uh, in schools generally would, would clearly uh, go a long way towards maintaining significant racial presence. What, what, just, what about your own study, Professor, that, that from back in 2005 that, that, that suggested that, that racial preferences in law school uh, had uh, kind of the opposite effect from what was intended, that, that it was uh, reducing the number of, of minority lawyers? Uh, is, is, is that something that, that the court should be looking at in this case? Does that have any implications uh, here? Well, we're going to encourage them to look at it, but... Um it's 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 hard to say. It, it, that, that goes back to how how deeply into the controversy the court wants to get. Um, the, the general idea of that research is that if you if you uh, have a given level of academic preparation, then attending a school where uh, most of your peers are at a similar level of academic preparation is probably the best way of maximizing your learning experience. And that preferences frequently are so large that they they push you into a school where um, your your pre your preparation puts you close to the bottom of the class, and that can have a variety of negative effects. In, in law school, it has the effect that you become much less likely to pass the bar when you graduate. In the Texas situation, it's kind of an interesting application because, you know, a key goal as we've discussed is this is this goal of classroom diversity. So to achieve that, you need to have you need to have uh, diverse students participating in different parts of the curriculum, and since my 2004 article, there's been a lot of work by a number of scholars on this issue of science mismatch. And the notion there is that if, you, if you're a minority who wants to become a scientist um, or an engineer, um, then one of the worst things you can do is, is, is uh, go to a school with a large preference because students who do that um, tend to drop out of sciences and engineering at very, very high rates. So that's this notion that... Uh, uh, when you push very hard on preferences, you can end up into a, a self-defeating cycle. And in Texas, the, the, the SAT gap between uh, blacks being admitted with these uh, explicitly racial preferences and uh, white and Asian students is 
I think close to 400 points. So that's you're, you're opening up a huge gap in academic preparation, and you're making it likely that no matter how many additional students you admit, a large part of your curriculum is, is still going to be segregated, perhaps more segregated than it would be with smaller preferences. Well, gentlemen, it's time for us to take a short break. We'll have much more on this potentially landmark decision on affirmative action when Lord Lawyer returns right after this. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, pro- a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. If you're like many solo and small firm attorneys, it can be challenging to manage both your practice and give your clients the attention they need. Well, now you can do it all free for 30 days with LexisNexis Firm Manager. Built from the ground up for attorneys like you, it's an easy way to get organized, master your business, and keep your clients happy. Firm Manager is secure, web-based, and mobile, so you can manage your practice anytime, anywhere, from your laptop, smartphone, iPad, or tablet. No IT hassles, no long-term commitments, and best of all, no more worries about what needs to be done. Get your free 30-day trial of LexisNexis Firm Manager today at firmmanager.com slash LTN. That's firmmanager.com slash LTN. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. We're talking today with Mike Sachs, the Supreme Court correspondent for the Huffington Post, and Professor Richard Sander uh, from UCLA School of Law. And uh, let's get back to our discussion. Uh, Mike, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, this case. I mean, we, we've we talked a little bit in, in, in about the uh, significance uh, uh, of uh, of the composition of of the justices here in in, in the recusal, um, 
how, how do you see that? I mean, do you have any sense of how that's going to play out uh, in the way the justices address this case? Yeah, you know, I uh, I think the decision is ultimately going to come down uh, as it has since Baki on uh, on ide- ideological grounds. Uh, I think uh, whatever arguments or statistics can be thrown at them in the amicus briefs will help either side's argument, but ultimately the votes are going to be based on uh, on on their their gut stances on, on uh, affirmative action that they've that they've had you know since since well before they were justices. Um, I think that Kagan's recusal, uh, if you do the math, can uh, it may actually, as as uh, as was said earlier, it may not have it have a real difference. If you had expected her to be, uh, you know, one of four uh, liberal justices to to maintain Gruder as a as a as a precedent, then you potentially had a four one four decision. Uh, Somewhat like you you saw in the parents involved case in 2007, where you have four justices who take a hard line against affirmative action or against racial preferences, um, and you have one justice Kennedy who has never voted to uphold an affirmative action case, but has always said that in theory uh, it's a good thing. Um, and then you have four justices who you know w- would in another time had uh, had they had five votes would have uh, blessed a much more robust um, type of affirmative action uh, of the likes that, say, Justice uh, Thurgood Marshall uh, expounded upon in his dissent from Bakke back in 1978. So, uh, but with, with Kagan's removal, you now potentially have uh, four justices to one justice to three justices um, who are look, who would like to uh, go right to the root and, and overturn Bakke. Um, and but you definitely have five justices, uh, you know, the four conservatives and, and Kennedy, who will, uh, who, who I think there's no no doubt will vote to um, vote to overturn Gruder. Uh, as it's framed to them, you know, they can, as we said earlier, take a more narrow decision um, and just say, you know, this is inconsistent with the spirit of Gruder. But all, you know, Kennedy, uh, Thomas, and Scalia were all on the court in Gruder, and they know that the spirit of Gruder was uh, was much more expansive than than they're willing to interpret it. So if they were to come out and say, you know, we're going to uphold, we're upholding Gruder, but and we're not going to touch it, but this this uh, this affirmative action scheme just doesn't uh, doesn't relate or isn't good enough or it doesn't doesn't pass our muster, that'll be a distortion of what what everyone who reads Gruder knows it knows it to knows it to mean. So I see no way around the court just saying um, we're going to we're going to overturn Gruder. And I think affirmative action in the future will be uh, Justice Kennedy's affirmative action at least uh, for for some more years in. in uh, Beyond his, uh, while he's still on the court, and that'll be where you know it's it's good in theory, um, but it's it's it, it's it's never uh, approved of in practice. Mike, why do you think the Supreme Court picked this case up? I mean, has that much changed in the last nine years since no. Crude? <laughs> the only thing that's changed is that Justice O'Connor is gone and Justice Alito is in. That's the only reason. I think this, among several other major hot button issues that have animated the the conservative legal movement since the, since the 1970s, um, this is this is one of those one of those issues. They've they've already um, they've already achieved a goal in the campaign finance world with with Citizens United, um, and they've. They've taken half steps in affirmative action um, and in abortion towards towards an overruling of of, of Baki and of uh, of of Roe. Um, I think 
that the court, in, in some of its more unanimous opinions and some of its more restrained opinions, is just really building up uh, the political capital to to uh, take out those uh, to, to to take out those precedents um, when when they finally come along. And I think that this case, in particular, is one of the is is just the strongest case that that they've received um, to go and, and at least take another half step in overturning Gruder, if not going all the way back to Baki. You know, I think, um, I think that, that one of the things they have to, uh, they have to worry about is, is stepping too far. Um, but I think given how, how divisive, um, Gruder was when it decided, and I don't think that they'll be, uh, they'll be too worried about about going back and, and reversing it and taking taking the firestorm for for doing so. So uh, you know, Mike might be right, but let me just offer a different a different interpretation. Um, there's pretty strong evidence that Gruder simply hasn't worked. Um, whatever O'Connor intended, she certainly intended to rein in some of the practices that were operating um, in 2003. That's why Gruder was paired with another decision, Gratz against the University of Michigan, which explicitly prohibited certain types of affirmative action. So any way you look at Gruner and Gratz, you've got to say that, that O'Connor intended practices of schools to be narrower and more restrictive than they were before. And yet the evidence shows that um, schools kind of took this as a signal. They sort of interpreted it the way, the way Mike has suggested and have actually become more aggressive and more mechanical in their admissions. You can quantitatively show, for example, that, that law schools have moved towards more quantitative and automatic admissions preferences since Grutter than they had before Grutter. So, so I think you know, I think the justices uh, would rightly feel on, on, on both sides of the ideological spectrum that uh, that Grutter just hasn't worked very well. Um, plus, there's this kind of growing sense uh, from the type of research that I talked about before that affirmative action just isn't working very well. Uh, that 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 a lot of the intended goals don't translate very well, and that the intended beneficiaries may actually end up hurt more than helped. Um, the third thing is that O'Connor explicitly said in her opinion in Grutter that um, she expected racial preferences to disappear by 2028. And we're more than a third of the way to 2028. And there's no sign of, of any kind of winding down of preferences by universities. As I say, a lot of them have become larger since 2003. So these are all reasons why it makes sense for the court to uh, to revisit this issue, and uh, I, I think I think the reasons that go beyond ideology. Well, but couldn't the argument be made that that what the court should be doing is is expanding Gruder rather than than restricting it? I mean, you you talk about you know there was a study within the last couple of years that said that uh, you know law school admissions uh, continue to uh, decline among minorities. Uh, yeah, know. that study was actually false. It was, uh, and, and um, it was essentially retracted by its authors. It's, it's not true at all. Minority emissions continue to climb at, at law schools. Decline, you said? No, incline. Uh, the the, the incline. number of minorities, yeah. blacks and Hispanics, uh, and Asian enrollments have all continued to increase at law schools. And, and why, is that, why is that a bad thing? <laughs> like, um, I didn't say it was a bad thing. I was just saying that the study that claims that it's falling is, is false. Right. Uh, well, right. What's what's bad is that is that law schools and universities continue to use highly mechanical racial preferences. In other words, instead of doing what Grutter says and and trying to individually kind of look at how much diversity a particular individual can contribute to a campus and uh, and how much they can benefit from being at the campus, schools 
tend to just pursue a simple numbers game. They say, we're going to encounter political flack if we don't achieve a 9% black presence and a 7% Hispanic presence. So we're just going to racially segregate our admissions and admit the strongest blacks and Hispanics within each of the pools based purely on the numbers. They're not looking at individuals' diversity characteristics. They're not looking at class. They're not looking at whether the students are, are actually going to benefit from being at that school. So it's a very, it's a very uh, mechanical and, and uh, uh, sort of brain-dead type of process. Gentlemen, we've, we've just about reached the, the end of our show. Richard, I'm sorry to interrupt okay. you, but we're just about to the end of our show, and we need to wrap up and get your final thoughts. So, uh, Mike, I'll throw it over to you first to get uh, both your final thoughts and your contact information. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts on this is that we're going to be seeing um, a spike in the, social, in the social issues over the next couple of years, um, not only with affirmative action, but with, uh, with all the abortion restrictions that are being passed in the, um, in the states now. Some of those cases will be reaching the Supreme Court, and uh, I feel we'll be having similar discussions on, on that, and as well as the gay marriage cases, both in the, in the, at the, state, in the state laws with Prop 8 in the federal courts, as well as, as, well as DOMA. Uh, those will be reaching the court. So any kind of uh, huge term we think we're having right now, I think um, we'll just continue over the next one or two terms. Uh, it's going to be something to behold to see how how far um, the uh, the Roberts Court's willing to go in in in, uh, in repairing, restoring, or or extending uh, what they feel are, um, are are good or bad decisions of the past. Um, and my contact information, uh, my my uh, author page is HuffingtonPost.com slash Mike hyphen Sachs, S-A-C-K-S. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Sachs HP. Great. Thank you very much. And Richard, your final thoughts and your contact information, please. Well, I, I think uh, this is going to be a pretty interesting debate on affirmative action. And I hope that I hope the debate moves from just kind of the, the old debate on whether preferences are morally right or wrong and focuses more on on how well they work and uh, and how we might redesign these policies to uh, to better achieve the goals that we set out a generation ago um, i'm uh, I'm at UCLA and, and my email is sander at law.ucla.edu and a lot of the work uh, on affirmative action that I've been involved in is posted at project SEAF, S-E-A-P-H-E. if you google that then you should be able to find it yeah, and we should we should mention this case is actually not going to be argued until until the next term, uh, as as I understand it. the The briefing will happen over the summer, and the case will be argued uh, next year sometime. Probably October or November. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks a lot to both of you. This has been a really interesting discussion. I wish we had more time to go into it, but uh, you've both offered some some great insights uh, on these issues, and uh, really appreciate your time. Well, thanks for Thank having you. me. Yeah, very happy to be here. Thanks for being on the show. And for our listeners, Bob, we want to remind them they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all of our Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. We'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. See you then. See you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. 
We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.